Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 151, The Bridge at Montero. First of all, just a quick word to say thanks to everyone for responding to the music question. It was pretty conclusive. Lose the music. Okay, that's fine. Seriously, it was rather nice to get so many people who liked the cast enough to make a comment. So thanks all, and the music is history. Last week, we heard about the diplomatic conference at Milan and its eventual failure, washing up against the rock of a new Burgundian and Dauphinist alliance. Henry was livid. Within a decently short number of days, and in fact arguably before the truce period had ended, he had attacked and captured the French citadel of Pontoise on the Seine, close to Paris, in a way that looked just a little bit suspiciously well planned. For the moment, Henry then turned his attention to establishing a new court at Rouen. The Dauphin, meanwhile, had established his own court at Bourges, counterpoint to the Burgundian court and that of his father, the king, at Paris. He'd looked around for help, and we might well reference the old alliance at this point, by which I mean, of course, the ancient and well-trodden alliance between Scotland and France. The origins of this alliance lie in Edward I's meddling in the succession crisis in Scotland in the late 13th century and in 1295 it was John Balliol who had signed a treaty with the King of France against England. That alliance had remained a living, breathing relationship throughout the 14th century and would do so until the crowns were combined under James I in 1603, although it's reasonably clear the French got more from the relationship than did the Scots. 
but it was unsurprising that in 1418 the Dauphin turned to the Scots for help. And the Scots were eager to give it. Because the French alliance brought them a bargaining chip and theoretical help at least against the English. And because there was far greater scope for personal gain, honour and glory in war-torn but rich France than there was in Scotland, or indeed in England for that matter. And so it was that two leading Scottish lords, John Stuart, the Earl of Buchan, and Archibald Douglas, Earl of Wigton, would come to France at the head of an army of at least 6,000 men. Buchan was 38 and Wigton, although much younger at 27, represented the power of his father, the Earl of Douglas, head of one of the greatest Scottish families. You may or may not remember, but in 1402 the Scots had been crushed at Homelden Hill by the English, and as a result, the King of Scotland, James, remained in Henry's captivity. But from this agreement with France, a tradition was established called the Garde Écossais, a royal bodyguard for the French monarchy, which would last until the 18th century. But in September 1419, it looked as though maybe the Scots would be part of a much grander alliance, since the Burgundians and Dauphinists appeared to have sunk their differences. The Dauphin, Charles, was an odd sort of chap. Quite clearly he was a flamboyant lad with a passionate desire to win his kingdom back, sporting a coat of arms with the colours of France and the symbol of a fist holding a naked sword. But unfortunately he was also a fearful, indecisive 16-year-old, obsessed by the occult arts such as alchemy. But at his side was a much more experienced leader a man called Tonnegui du Châtel, in his late forties and a great favourite of the Dauphin, whom he'd saved from the Paris mob earlier in 1418. Tonnegui had constantly travelled to the Burgundian court to meet with John the Fearless, and in July had persuaded him and the Dauphin to meet on the bridge at Puy, and come to the broad agreement that had ended the Burgundian and English negotiations at Melun. But another meeting was needed to seal the deal and make sure the French effectively united to drive the English pig-dogs out of France. And so Tanagui was constantly at John's side, wheedling and trying to persuade him to meet personally with the Dauphin. Both sides were essentially up for it. I've always wondered about the Burgundians' attitude to the English, which can't have been massively positive, both from a political sense, and especially since a couple of Jean's family had died at Agincourt at the hands of the English themselves. For Jean, and indeed his son Philip, alliances with England would always be dictated by expediency or need, rather than heart. And with the failure of the talks with the English at Melun, alliance with the Dauphinists looked to be the best option. From the Dauphin's point of view, he was in a bad place, with Henry pitching for his job and looking pretty much unstoppable. So the Dauphin had to find a way to unite the French against the English. Of course, precedence began to cause a problem in arranging the meeting. Tonnegui hassled Jean to come and visit the Dauphin at the town of Montereux, which lay southeast of Paris. Jean argued that the Dauphin should come to his court. After all, whatever the precedence of birth, Jean was effectively the most powerful man in France. And anyway, as we know, Jean was pretty paranoid by now and obsessed with the idea that he'd be murdered. Jean the really rather nervous. All of this would have been driving poor old Tanagi up the proverbial wall. As far as he was concerned, the Dauphin was his lord, the heir to France, and Jean must come and see the Dauphin, and quickly, before the English appeared at the gates of Paris. 
So he used less obvious channels and routes to power and persuasion, although a time-honoured route through the Duke's favourite mistress, a noblewoman called Digiai. Digiai was not only a mistress. John had used her before as a go-between with the Dauphin, and John trusted her judgment. And in the end, she and Tonagui persuaded Jean that everything would be fine. And eventually, John was prevailed on to agree, and off he set for Montero in September 1419. Now, the bridge at Montero was a wide stone affair in the shadow of the church, which stood on a low hill above it. But when Jean arrived at the nearby castle at about three o'clock on the afternoon of the 10th of September, his advisers were worried. The Dauphin had been there ahead of him, and a large wooden gate had been built at each end of the bridge. Everyone was nervous. No one could relax. Could it be? Could it possibly be? John again turned to de Guy, and again his mistress persuaded him that he couldn't back out now. He'd look like a cowardly custard. Man up. It'll be fine. Tanagi assured him that, look, these were measures taken to assure his safety. Each side of the bridge would have a gate, the number of people would be restricted to ten for each party, and for the party the number of people shall be ten, and eleven will be right out. Reassured, John entrusted Dugiai to one of his men, took ten of his closest followers, and went down to the bridge. Nonetheless, he was still nervous. Outside the barrier he met more of the Dauphin's men who reassured him everything will be fine with all sworn oaths not to cut you into small pieces. It's fine. Fine. Meanwhile on the Dauphin's side the young Dauphin was preparing with his entourage for the meeting. One chronicler afterwards spoke about how he saw the Dauphin speak to one of his companions who was due to accompany him onto the bridge a man called Robert Le Masson. When they spoke Robert looked animated, and when the Dauphin drew away, Robert tried to detain him to speak more, but the Dauphin tore himself roughly away. Robert then threw himself onto a bed and exclaimed to our chronicler, I wish to God I was in Jerusalem without money or belongings. The dead never met this lord here, for I am very much afraid he has been wickedly advised, and he'll do something today which will be very damaging both to him and to his kingdom. Hmm. If you'd been in the Burgundian camp and heard this, you might well have been a little worried at this point. Nonetheless, down at the barricade on the bridge, John and his ten companions made themselves known to the Dauphin's guards, who checked they had no kit except hauberk and sword, then let them through the temporary gate into the enclosure on the bridge. Inside... Jean could see the Dauphin and his entourage at the other side of the enclosure. Behind him he might have heard the gate being locked by the Dauphin's men, but close to him was Tanagui and John was reassured again. He had met this guy constantly to negotiate this meeting. He was more of a friend than an ambassador now, and he was at least partly there because he trusted him. And so the mighty Duke of Burgundy slapped Tanagui on the shoulder affectionately and said to his ten companions, here is he whom I trust. Jean then walked over to where the young Dauphin stood, and as a mark of respect went down on one knee. Sire, I am come at your command. You know of the desolation of the kingdom and of your domain. Pay heed to its restoration. As for me, I am ready and prepared to expose my body and goods for this end. 
and those of my subjects, vassals and allies. The Dauphin replied by graciously thanking John, raising his hat and asking him to rise. But as he did so, making a sign to his companions, and suddenly Jean felt a rough shove on his shoulders, and turning, saw his friend Tanagy with an axe in his hand, and had the time to hear his friend shouting, Die! Before you could say pardon, the axe fell on his head, and half his chin was gone. Nonetheless, he struggled to rise, but the axe rose and fell again, and he lay still. Behind him, the Burgundian Duke of Nouet had grabbed the hand of a Dauphinist assailant wielding a knife and ripped the knife from his hand, but before he could take the fight further, another axe was in his head, and all he knew before night closed on his eyes was the sound of the cries of pain and alarm and kill, kill, as his Burgundian companions died around him. One Burgundian only escaped by running for the side of the bridge and leaping over the parapet into the river below, and so escaping. There he was soon joined, incidentally, by the body of the most powerful man in France, the Duke of Burgundy. Sick transit, Gloria Mundi. By this stage, the Dauphin had been hustled from the bridge through the enclosure to the Dauphinist's side. So, that is one description of the events of the 10th of September, 1419. There are many, many others, ladies and gentlemen. Seriously, for those of you who have ever worked on a legal case or something, here is confirmation that truth is purely a matter of perception, since eyewitnesses all wildly disagree as to what actually happened. There's a long series of disputes between historians seeking to decide if there was in fact a scuffle. If all this was done in hot blood, rather than the premeditation this version supposes. To decide if the Dauphin was involved or not. So I'm going to take the bloke in a shed approach. It seems reasonably obvious to me that the Dauphin knew exactly what was going to happen, that this was premeditated murder, which is why I chose that version. But other views are available. The Lady of Guillaume, by the way, threw herself on the mercy of the Dauphinists since the Burgundians stripped her of all her lands and wealth and left her penniless. Now, no doubt your hands are raised to the skies and you are exclaiming, why, in the name of all that is holy, are you warbling on about this detail of French history? The title of this podcast is The History of England, dude! Let's hear about the history of England. Well, there are two reasons. The first is, it's quite a yarn, isn't it? For the second reason, let me take you forward in time to 1521, and the visit of the French king Francis I, great rival of Henry VIII, to a Carthusian friary near Dijon. Although John the Fearless's body had been roughly buried in the nearest churchyard, the Burgundians had recovered it and brought it back to the family tomb in Burgundy. And this was the tomb that Francis I was visiting. The monk there took the skull of the duke and held it up in front of Francis and showed him the hole made by Tonaghy's axe and said, And here is the hole through which the English entered France. Because the almost unbelievably stupid murder of John the Fearless on the bridge at Montereau changed everything. John's heir was the 23-year-old Philip, Count of Charolais, and now Duke of Burgundy. Philip was to reign for 48 long years and be known to history as Philip the Good, and he would raise Burgundy to the height of her power in the Low Countries and in France, be a patron of the arts, and incidentally have 18 documented illegitimate children by 24 mistresses which comes close, but not close enough, to Henry I of England and his 21 illegitimate children. 
Not a relevant piece of information to the greater development of Europe, but, well, you know. Philip really had no choice about what to do next. He could find ways to try and avoid blaming the Dauphin and the royal family through the normal channel of, ooh, he was badly advised. But he could have no truck at all with the Armagnac and Orleanists who had been at the Dauphin's side. He was honour-bound to avenge his father, and the English were at the gates of Paris. Hmm, what to do? Initially, Philip went for melodrama, taking to his bed and doing all the eye-rolling and teeth-gnashing stuff. Meanwhile, Henry gave the ladder a gentle nudge by suddenly deciding that his father Jean had been, quote, a good and loyal knight and a prince of honour, conveniently forgetting all his outrage at the failure of the talks at Melon. And so Philip reached the obvious conclusion. Alliance with England was the only way forward. Practically, England was the only ally that could really make the French suffer for their crime. There were other advantages too. Never forget that the Duchy of Burgundy included Flanders and the Low Countries to boot, who were all desperate to start trading again with the English. The diplomacy started immediately. Ambassadors and correspondents shuttled between Henry and Philip like blue-arsed flies. Henry offered an irresistible package. He would drive the Dauphin from Paris and power and destroy him utterly and put him and his Armagnac allies at the mercy of the Burgundian duke to pay for their crimes. He would restore good governance to France, and the fortunes of Burgundy would fly higher than ever before. In return, he would need to be given the hand of Princess Catherine of France in marriage. He would need to be made regent of France, since obviously the king, her father, was struggling at the moment, and was basically as daft as a brush. And then here's the kicker. The Dauphin had clearly ruled himself out of the succession by his crimes. So a new heir was required, and who better than the children of Henry and Catherine? For Philip of Burgundy, there was really no other game in town. The Dauphin had to go, there was no one else, and only Henry had the poke to make this happen. The agreement the parties arrived at by December 1419 was without doubt a diplomatic triumph for Henry, and a quite amazing outcome. Henry's children were going to be acknowledged as the heirs to France. All of it, the whole kit caboodle. I mean, wow. Eat your heart out, teddy baby. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. On the other hand, hate it or loathe it, Henry himself was being driven to the same place by the logic of his success. If he didn't make this agreement, Normandy would be forever vulnerable to the French, Burgundians, Armagnac, Orleanists, whoever. His conquest lacked any real legal basis. And just as the French kings had used their legal status against the English kings when they were holders of land in France, so they would here again. 
If the English were to secure their conquests, there was only one route open to them. They'd have to be the kings of France. I think it would be worthwhile, in the spirit of Englishness, to look at a bunch of negatives. Then we can push the boat out and revel in the celebrations. So, first of all, the Dauphin and the Armagnac were far from being a spent force. For example, they'd hired a Castilian navy who gave the English something of a drubbing in late 1419, notably by using onboard artillery. Land engagements in 1420 showed that the relationships between Burgundian and Englishmen were by no means perfect and they found it difficult to work together and the Dauphinists were able to put up an effective fight. Normandy was beginning to accept Henry as its duke but the war magnified the effects of fighting and brigandage in the Norman countryside and the differences in culture between the Englishman Henry and his French followers was to remain a running sore, not helped by Henry's seriously developing sense of superiority and entitlement. These following examples, true enough, come after the treaty is finalised at Troyes, but I give them now just for illustrative purposes. And for a nation that prides itself on pragmatism and lack of pretension, it's rather painful to relate. But here we go. At one siege, the Earl of Huntingdon refused to treat with the French because the French guy he was talking to wore a beard. I mean, please. Worse was the run-in between Henry and the French marshal, Lille Adam. It shows something of the developing temper of Henry. It's a little difficult to avoid the conclusion that Henry was beginning to head towards a power trip as nutty as Richard II and his weird court. So it started with Henry trying to be rather light-hearted on coming across Lille Adam wearing a grey, dull surcoat. Henry is played by my son, Lille Adam is played by myself. What is this, a dress for the Marshal of France? Lille Adam looked Henry in the face and said, Sire, I had it made thus to cross the Seine in boats. How dare you look a prince full in the face when speaking to him? Such is the custom of Frenchmen, and if anyone addresses another, whatever may be his rank and looks on the ground, he's thought to have evil designs and cannot be an honest man, since he dare not look in the face of him to whom he's speaking. Such is not our custom. So we know whose side we're on on this quarrel. But the point is that accepting of differences in culture, Henry did not prove himself to be. Léladon was to be deprived shortly of his office of marshal and indeed of his liberty. So my point is that not everything was rosy in the English and Burgundian garden. But if I had been a rose at the time, I know full well which garden I've chosen to grow in and it would not have been the Jardin of the Dauphin. For the future would not have looked rosy there, and it was about to get worse. Just to make things a little worse, some of the Dauphin's supporters chose this moment to ambush the Duke of Brittany. Nice touch, and create yet another friend for the English cause. For Henry, the expression, with enemies like these, who needs friends, springs to mind. So let me tell you about the city of Troyes. Troyes, was one of the great market cities of Champagne, southeast of Paris. Champagne was part of the economic heartland of France. Usually bypassed by the violence of the Hundred Years' War, part of the merchants' road from Italy to the Low Countries, the place where the great trade fairs pulled in merchants from hundreds of miles around. Another point about Troyes was that it was a good location to meet with the Duke of Burgundy, and not far from Paris too. 
However, at this particular point in time, it's a location that was very much in dispute between English, Dauphinist and Burgundian, the subject of raids by all parties, which meant that it was an act of supreme confidence for Henry to select this as the location where a treaty would be sealed by the Burgundians and himself, and the King of France. Because, of course, for the agreement to have any weight, it needed to be sealed also by the King to agree to the marriage of his daughter and the disinheritance of his son, the Dauphin. And so, on the 8th of May, 1420, Henry and his army marched through France as though he owned it. He swung round the northwest of Paris, visiting the ancient heart of the French monarchy, the monastery of Saint-Denis. He marched right by the walls of Paris, but despite the surprising enthusiasm of the Parisians and the open, welcoming gates, he just waved cheerily and didn't come in for a cup of tea and a bun, but kept going. And in Troyes, the whole remarkable and really quite extraordinary pageant unfolded. Henry was greeted with great cordiality by the now enormous Queen Isabeau. The king was in one of his bad periods and was confused, but again welcoming. And both of them appeared more than pleased to be engaging their daughter and dumping their son. Henry was again clearly more than a little delighted with his new Queen Catherine. And so on the 21st of May in Trois Cathedral, this remarkable document was sealed. Henry renounced his claim to be King of France. Instead, he would be made Regent of France, responsible for ruling France according to her own laws and customs, and he was to rule with the support and advice of the French Estates General. Until the son of Catherine and himself was born, who would then be heir to the throne of France and his descendants thereafter. Good Lord, would you Adam and Eve it. On the following day, the marriage of Henry and Catherine was completed in the Paris church near where Henry was staying, and then there was a glorious honeymoon for the happy couple, which in fact lasted about two days before Henry got back to the business of winning a kingdom. The English and Burgundians lumbered towards Paris, reducing the impressive fortresses that stood in their way. Sens was captured, swiftly followed by the very town and castle of Montereau, where John the Fearless had been murdered allowing the Burgundians to dig up their duke from his ignoble burial place and return him to the grandeur of the family tomb. This left just the mighty castle of Melun, left in the Dauphinist hands between Troyes and Paris. Melun did not go easily. Its commander, Barbazin, refused to yield, even when the French king himself commanded it. Henry even rolled out the Scottish King James, still in his captivity, to order the Scottish mercenaries to desert the French cause, only to see that tactic fail as well. And so it came down to the heavy English guns, battering the walls day by day. It came to assault and counter-assault, to mine and countermine. By the dim candles of the wet mine, Henry and Barbazan themselves came to fight hand to hand. But the English and the Burgundians were irresistible. And after four months, Melun fell and the way to Paris was firmly secured. Throughout the year, Henry acted with irresistible and ultimately victorious decisiveness, clarity of purpose and, on occasion, brutality. For example, outside the Wall of Sens, eleven dignitaries were held hostage for the surrender of the town. When it refused to surrender, the dreadful theatre was played out 
The eleven men dragged to their knees outside the walls in sight of their horrified families, and duly executed. Along with them was killed Henry's favourite servant, who had lost his temper and killed a knight by accident and paid the price. At Melun, the Scottish mercenaries were promptly hanged on the walls of the town on the grounds that they disobeyed their king. And also, one of Henry's captains had been accused of bribery, and he too was executed in the face of desperate pleas by Henry's brother Clarence and the Duke of Burgundy. So, what are we to make of this? And together with it, the Treaty of Troyes. With all the benefit of hindsight, it looks seriously nutty, and the obvious temptation is to look at it and conclude that Henry was as mad as a box of cheese, and had concluded a treaty that defied geographical and historical realities, and had committed the English people to a war that was quite beyond their means, doomed to failure, and would probably sacrifice them on the altar of Henry's increasingly wild ambition. That as he chased his golden dream, civilized behaviour died. Along with any sense of proportion, and Henry had gone as power mad as he was religiously extreme. Well, that's certainly one way of looking at things. There is another way, though. It would be really very difficult indeed to argue that Henry was a soft touch, the kind of boss happy to turn a blind eye to a few extra days off and a light-fingered approach to the stationery cupboard, or that he was anything other than a scarily focused man. He was, without doubt, a driven, focused, cold-hearted, and logical bloke, was absolutely determined. To achieve his objective, but he was neither strategically deluded nor did he lose his sense of proportion in the process. Outside of outright defeat, the idea of a dual monarchy was in fact the only possible way England could find a way out of the long wars and struggle between English and French dynasties. Henry was sincere in his search for peace, and peace could come only through a single ruler, legal and accepted by both kingdoms. Only by bringing the traditional enemies together could they finally be reconciled. In defence of this strategy, there's an excellent parallel in the relationship between England and Scotland. Life on the borders of England and Scotland was a brutish and vicious struggle for survival, and not until James I ruled both kingdoms according to their own separate traditions did the violence end, along with the border. On a tactical level, there's equally no point in pretending that Henry was Paddington Bear. But he knew when to stop, as we'll discuss a bit next time. His treatment was in no way equivalent to Billy the Conk's "wipe out their leaders, take their land and women" approach. It was one of reconciliation for any that would accept his leadership. There was no complaint amongst the French chroniclers about Henry's behaviour at Sens or Melun. Even the monk of Saint Denis, the most traditional and patriotic of chroniclers, throws his hands in the air and concludes that maybe Henry is the best solution, since only he seems to have the strength and character to bring good government. Obviously, he didn't throw his hands in the air while he was writing; otherwise, it'd be a pretty messy manuscript. But you know what I mean. Henry was as hard as nails, as the contemporary quote has it. He was much dreaded and feared by his princes, knights, and captains. And people of every degree, because all those who disobeyed his orders or infringed his edict, he put to death without mercy. But with the possible exception of the prisoners at Agincourt, he played by the rules and within the limits of the day, and genuinely believed he was doing God's work in pursuing a permanent end to the war. You might equally think his level of single-mindedness mad, but his contemporaries had no doubt in thinking him a sane, successful, pious, and worthy prince. And so, on the first of December, Henry and Philip of Burgundy marched into Paris. 
conduits ran with wine, and the Parisians celebrated, for the moment at least. They might not love the English, but they loved the Burgundians, and as long as Henry delivered the goods, they would accept him as well. As Henry celebrated Christmas in Paris, his court, the court of the Regent of France, glittered with all the leading French princes and barons gathered round. Down the road, forgotten by the powerful but not by the chroniclers, the court of the mad king and his queen was shamefully empty, quiet and shabby by comparison. The Weekly Word and note the lack of music. Now this week, and hopefully for future weeks, we have a treat. I thought the weekly word would be a great idea, and a doddle, essentially. I mean, how hard can it be to think of a word every week and talk about their provenance? After all, there are 600,000 of the things to choose from. Well, turns out you need a brain for this sort of thing, so already I am in trouble. And there's a danger that the weekly word will turn into my equivalent of the ancient mariner's albatross. Enter. Da-da, stage left, the hero in shining armour, also known as Kevin, and the self-same moment I could pray, and from my neck so free, the albatross fell off and sank like lead into the sea. Kevin is the author of the History of English podcast, and a very wonderful podcast it is. And Kevin, bless him, has agreed to do a brief segment at the end of My Ear podcast. And today, it's one of the phrases I enjoy using in my daily life, because it's a phrase that feels just a little bit archaic. And it's nice, every so often, to feel just a little archaic. Now that the shoe is on the other foot, to kick off our guest word, here is Kevin on to boot. Thanks, David. This episode's word is boot, but not the boot you wear on your feet. This time, I'm talking about the boot that we use in the phrase to boot, meaning in addition to or moreover. We might use it in a sentence like, the baker gave me 10% off the price of the birthday cake, and threw in the candles to boot. And that's really the original sense of the phrase. It meant to the good, or some extra benefit thrown in. The word can be traced back to the Old English language of the Anglo-Saxons, where it was boat, spelled B-O-T. And again, it meant good. But over time, the word good largely replaced boat. But notice what happens when we compare two or more things. One thing is good, two are better, three is best. Good, better, best. The words better and best are both derived from the same root which gave us the word boot. And if the word good had not forced its way into the language, today we would probably be saying boot, better, best, rather than good, better, best. Even though the Old English word boat largely disappeared, it did survive in this one particular construction, to boot, meaning to the good. In the late 1300s and early 1400s, it would have been rendered as to bota. But by the early 1600s, our modern to boot had finally emerged. So I hope you find that interesting and learned a little something to boot. Back to you, David. Kevin, thank you. Love it. So there you go. Hopefully the start of a long and happy marriage. Figuratively speaking, of course. And so all of you, hop along to Kevin's website, historyofenglishpodcast.com, or one word. That's it for this week. Next week, Henry is going to make a good career choice, and we can close another chapter. And, of course, I have generous donators to thank, but before I do that, it's Mark. It's Mark in particular whose praises I must sing this week. Mark, bless him, 
put a link on Wikipedia to my animated maps of Poitiers, Crecy and Agincourt. What a triumph. Thank you, Mark. And thanks also to generous donators Jim, Jason, Harvey, William, Matthew and Kathy. And thanks a million to all of you for listening and commenting on the interweb. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 